3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to our listeners at home today. Suddenly it's oh, suddenly it's Wednesday again and we're back in the studio broadcasting live from 3CR, or at least I am. You're listening to Alice here and we've got Claudia and he'll be also on the show just a little bit later. So you will hear some um, of our other team today, which is exciting. But it's the 8th of September, it's 7am and yeah, we're now ready to start the day together. So we've got a um, we've got an interesting show actually on today. So we're going to take a listen to Annie from Solidarity Breakfast and an interview that um, she did, I believe, only on Friday. So we're going to have a quick listen to that this morning. We're also going to take a listen to some wonderful voices from the Collingwood College and an interview that they've done with an Olympic walker. So stay tuned for that. And then we have Claudia, who will also be with us, speaking to her guest, Dr. Nafam, about corporate responsibility for modern slavery. And that's going to be at around 8am. So we're going to play some great tunes for you this morning. We're going to get everybody ready for the day and just kind of wake up with us together we're going to take it easy. We're going to listen to The Magnificent Moon. Oh, 
And that was The Magnificent Moon. Just a nice, easy, funky way to have a stretch and wake up on a Wednesday morning. That's definitely what I've been doing in the studio, having a little stretch and a boogie. You just can't beat it. And so to help us wake up a little bit more this morning, we've got some wonderful voices from the kids at the 3-4 Rego at Collingwood College. So they visited 3CR in May and June time. Um, and they learn all about the power of radio, but not just that. They also produce their own shows. They interviewed people and they had just a great time. And you can listen to all of their podcasts and their radio shows on the website. But um, I thought it would be really nice to just play a little bit of that. So we're going to hear just from them in a quick moment. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. You're listening to Fitter Kids and it's going to be awesome. So stay tuned. And if you're wondering who Fitter Kids are, we are students from 3-4 Regio from Collingwood College. And a big thanks to 3CR and the Yarra Council. Hi, my name's Sabrine. Hi, my name's Mahmoud. Hi, my name's Hussane. And, and we're, we're from Hollywood College! How far do you walk in a race? In a normal race, so when I raced at the Olympics, we raced 20 kilometres. How many minutes does it take to... Um, how much minutes does it take... So when I race, it would normally take me about one hour and 30 minutes to do the 20-kilometre race. Um, But sometimes, you know, that was on a good day. So some days I didn't race as fast as that and it might be slower. And then other days uh, it might be a little bit faster. So I think my personal best time was about one hour, 29 minutes for 20 kilometres. This is fun, actually. Why do you want to be... An Olympic walker. So I started walking or when I was, uh, I used to do a lot of running and I did little athletics. I don't know if any of anyone here has done little athletics before, but I, that's how I started. And then I, um, when I was a teenager, I started to, I guess, get a little bit better at it. And then I was still doing more running than I kind of was doing walking but then one of the coaches at the local club um, thought I should give it a go and that's how I started and then I had some success with it and I just kept going and then I kept training more and then I um, made it to the Olympics eventually but it took a very long time to get there so it's very cool actually I like it thank you are you good at running I think I'm okay at running um I suppose maybe not as good as at walking, though, as I am at walking. But do you um, get tackled? Do I get tackled? No. So ta- no tackling in walking events. Do you ever want to give up? Well, I yes, I think some days were really hard. Some training sessions were very difficult. And then some days you would have bad races and you'd think, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. But then 
um, you definitely you that, that's normal as well to have those feelings and then you just keep going and I had a lot of good people surrounding me so my friends were always really encouraging I had a really wonderful coach who used to um, help me with training and so even on the bad days I just would keep going and then um, yeah so you find you find motivation <laughs> even on the bad days but uh, I definitely had some bad days where I was really tired and I didn't want to do it anymore but Good thing you didn't do you give up. Do you laying down? Do you laying down? Uh, well, I mean, between training sessions, I would do a lot of laying down, lots of resting. Um, but yeah, you know, when, when, when you're walking a lot, sometimes you do miss laying down, I think. What is 230.2? What is 230.2? Yeah. Um, ah, okay. I see. I see. Yes. That's a great question. Um so what, what are the rules of race walking? Okay. You trying to say that. See, that question was very smart. I didn't even know what you were talking about. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that is one of the official rules in the about race walking, I, I'm, I think. So, um, so there's two rules. So you know how when you run, you have two feet off the ground, for example, at once, because you, you're moving your legs really oh. fast. But with walking, you've got to always have one foot um, on the ground at all times. So technically you're not running. And then the other rule is this one's a bit confusing, but there's two main rules. And the second one is that you can't, when your leg is on the, in contact with the ground, right? Your leg has to be straight. So you can't have a bent knee. So that sounds really confusing, but basically the rules of walking just make it so that you're not running. If that makes sense. It's cool. Technically. Okay. My turn. How much water do you drink? Hmm. So when you do long races, you do tend to sweat a lot. So on those days and training sessions, I would try and drink, oh, I don't know how much water, maybe, I mean, how much water are you meant to drink a day normally? I think they say... Eight cups a day. Eight cups a day. So um, if I was doing a lot of training, I'd probably try and almost drink double that, I would say, because you do lose a lot of water when you're training and and, um, racing through sweat but uh yeah so you gotta you gotta keep up your hydration levels because you have to replace all that fluid that you lose well how do you how how much number what number you are in the olympic walker so at the 2016 olympics so the ones that were in rio in brazil i came ninth in the olympic race oh yeah but that means um, someone was number ten. I saw you named Regan on it. Oh, when someone was number ten yeah. like behind me in the race. Yeah, and he, and he was running faster than her. But this girl, seven hundred four, she got Walked tackled. Faster. She got tackled. Oh. Yeah, and he just Walked and, and he was having laying down in the grass. I was probably very exhausted after the race. I think. <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> Have you ever been, have you ever saw someone cheat and run? Mm, so I think I you can be disqualified from the race for running, but I don't think the people would really be trying to cheat. I think they would be trying to walk, but unfortunately they just didn't have a good good day or their technique wasn't very good, and so then they might be disqualified. But um, I don't think they would have intentionally tried to to cheat okay this is very cool actually 
So, did you use to um, race in different countries? Yes. So, I was really lucky and I got to um, travel to lots of different countries and race. So, I went to places like, so the Olympics was in London, the first one, and then the second one was in Rio in Brazil. And then I went to other places like South America and I went to Europe quite a few times. I spent lots of time in Italy. Um, I went to America. So I got to lots of see lots of uh, really interesting places and I did get to travel a lot, which was one of the really cool things about... Why you get to travel a lot? Did you get to see all the sights when you finished? Um, <laughs> sometimes. So sometimes when we would go racing somewhere overseas, we might not get that much time to go explore different areas because we might only be there for a short time. Mm. But sometimes we got to see really cool stuff and sometimes uh, if we had a race and then overseas, we might get to spend a few days or go for a bit of a holiday afterwards and have a break from training and, and go travelling a bit. But do you have a break always? Yes, we did often have a break. Um, How much breaks do you have? That's a good question. Um, So if we had a really big race, like the Olympics, say, you might end up having like a big holiday afterwards and you could relax and not train for a while because you need to let your body rest. What is it like to go to the Olympics and... What do you get if you win? Um, So going to the Olympics is uh, really um, fun, obviously. So it's pretty cool. You get to meet lots of people from different countries and there's lots of people and um, you get to stay in the Olympic Village, which is like this big town almost that they they make just for the Olympics and there's about 10,000 athletes in there all competing in different events. So it's pretty interesting um, and you get to go and watch different different sports um, and you get to see some of your friends compete, which is really fun. Um, and then what was the second part of your question, sorry? It was, oh, what do you get if you win? Was that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so if you win the Olympics, you get a gold medal um, and then if you come second, you get a silver medal and if you come third, you get oh. a bronze medal. A fourth, unfortunately, you don't get a medal for fourth, but you still get to come fourth, which is still pretty cool. And and the last one, mm-hmm. this is mine, is thank you for speaking with us. You are most welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was great, uh, great questions. I had See lots you of fun. later. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And a big thanks to 3CR and the Yarra Council. And so that was um, some kids that are probably going to be the future Wednesday breakfast hosts because they're just so good. Um, But they're from 3-4 Regio at Collingwood College. And you may have guessed it as you were listening to that, but they were speaking to Regan Lamble, a women's athletics 20k race walker who had competed in Rio and London. And I just love listening to to their questions. It just really reminds you... um, how simple but amazing just little chats can be and what you can learn from them. So I hope you enjoyed that and hope, um, yeah, that was a nice, easy listening for you today. And up next, we have Jive Baby on a Saturday night by The Jellies.
You're listening to 3CR Radio.
And before the break, we heard from The Jellies with Jive's Baby on a Saturday night. And that was Soleil Soleil with Armored Fakroon. And now um, we hear from Annie from Solidarity Breakfast and her guest, Janet Burstall from Life, which is Living Incomes for Everybody. And Janet spoke with Annie about the alternative press conference they organised, an alternative to the official daily government COVID press conference in New South Wales. So the voices of the workers and the communities are constantly being just suppressed more and more. And so this group have have come together, held this press conference and held it live. So Life held their first on Tuesday, the 31st of August, but they are planning to do more. So you can watch out for all of that at um, on their Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Life Australia. And now we're going to take a quick listen to that interview. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got uh, Janet Burstall on the line and uh, Janet is from Living Incomes for Everybody. G'day, Janet. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Annie? Good. And uh, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us. Uh, Life has got uh, is uh, well known for its uh, collaborative efforts as well as its... Uh, uh, interesting approaches to political action. So next week you've got a very interesting uh, press conference uh, c- going to take place. Can you explain to our listeners what this is all about? Uh, yes, sure. Um, look, this press conference uh, came out of uh, an event that was held by the Greater Sydney branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and the AUWU is one of the uh, groups that endorses the last campaign and we work together. Uh, they held a forum on the 10th of August called Workers Won't Pay for the Crisis, Pandemic Poverty and Resistance. And uh, uh, the speakers at that forum um, were mainly workers who've been affected by uh, the New South Wales government's approach to the pandemic. And by the way, employers are responding. And... Uh, even I, I feel relatively well informed on on these issues, but uh, the stories from um, these workers and unionists were not getting airplay, and so we decided after the forum that we would try to get across their point of view and their experience by having a press conference that was an antidote to the daily New South Wales government uninformative press conferences. Yeah, yeah. So give us an idea of uh, uh, what kind of stories the people were telling at this forum. Uh, uh, well, a, non- a United Workers' Union organiser told us about uh, a Coles uh, distribution centre in, in Western Sydney where once a COVID case was discovered, management just wanted to continue uh, without interruption, and the union had to get the workers together to insist on suspending the shifts to allow for deep cleaning of the site and to allow everybody to get tested and uh, establish what would be safe conditions for returning to work. Yeah. So that was yeah. that was a union effort that made a difference. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it, that uh, this mantra about we're all in it together is quite clearly a falsehood. Uh, very much so. Um, 
uh, I, 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 a, a particular example and that I just was in the paper in the Sydney Morning Herald this week that um, I, I wanted to share actually is um, you know the, the New South Wales government went to all this effort to reopen construction and and the government says that the main transmission places are workplaces and households. It's quite clear that workers are picking up COVID at work and bringing it back to their household members. So uh, there's this a Sydney local health district video that's now being shown on TV. Um, one is a construction worker, one is um, a pharmacy worker, and another is a tradesman. And they're all people who've been required to work in the pandemic. And the government reopened construction and trades deliberately because the construction industry uh, jumped up and down about it. Possibly tradespeople did too because they weren't getting an income. And so these, each of these people has their whole family in hospital um, and some in intensive care. Uh, and it's the, the government says they're trying to control the pandemic, but they're forcing people to work who shouldn't have to. I would also, I guess, uh, not taking appropriate measures. You know, people, you know, that you can be uh, flippant about wearing your mask, that you can, you know, it's okay uh, to do that outside with, uh, because we're outside, that sort of stuff. You know, uh, denying that there is a, uh, an understanding of the distribution of uh, germs and you need to apply yourself to uh, regimes to reduce risk. Yeah, well, and in some cases, it's the it should be the employer's responsibility to ensure a safe workplace, and and that's clearly what hasn't been done, and the government doesn't apply any pressure to uh, employers to do that. Um, you know, Sally McManus put out a, a statement on Twitter that um, you know you have the right to refuse to perform work that endangers your health, and. Uh, she says, in Sydney, there's a public health order to only work outside of home if essential. Union members will be supported if they refuse work for this reason. I mean, I think all workers should be supported, whether they're union members or not, for refusing to work for this reason. And I think it's it's really takes workers organising health and safety demands at work placed on the employer uh, and, and the government is not backing that or encouraging that. And that's another reason for having this alternative press conference. I guess it's about... Because... Oh, sorry, go on. No, to go, go on, sorry. I was going to say, uh, it re-establishes the uh, fact that actually society is more than economy. Uh, economy is important, but it's there as a, uh, a tool of society. Uh, well, that would be ideal, but it clearly isn't the case uh, in the in the society we live in. Um, it's it's all about it's all about keeping uh, money flowing um, into the into the owners and operators of of uh, the means of production, if you like. Um, so. Uh, well, well, I was going to say that uh, going to your press conference would be a mental health. Uh, uh, um, uh, help, you know what I mean, like a, a, a service, because uh, I agree with you about the New South Wales uh, press conferences. They are just like swimming through effluence. The, the, I mean, one of the things that's most frustrating, there are many things that are frustrating about them, but one of them is that it doesn't matter what question, you can see the journalists um, developing and honing their questions, you know, as 
each each day the government avoids you know, the government spokespeople avoid answering the questions. The journalists are trying to get more and more focused and specific to avoid that, but it doesn't matter what they ask. The, the spokespeople for the government just keep repeating things that are not even answers to the question. You know, just uh, they latch onto one word and talk about the topic. Uh, so they won't. They're not being honest about what's happening and where it's going. They change their line from week to week. Um, apart from all their efforts to blame uh, individuals, they're not taking responsibility for their decisions. So uh, that's another factor that is so frustrating. But they're also blaming individuals and, and not taking responsibility for what is needed to stop workplace transmission because it's clearly workplace transmission that's sending back into households and families. And and, uh, and if employers yeah. won't take responsibility, the government isn't taking responsibility to call them out. So the press conference is Tuesday the 31st of August. And that was Janet Burstall from Life Living Incomes for Everybody who spoke to Annie from Solidarity Breakfast about the alternative press conference that they've held and what they're going to continue to do. Now, there are going to be more of these press conferences um, and so you can watch out for all that information on their Facebook page, which is at facebook.com forward slash Life Australia. And I'm certainly going to be on the lookout for that because, yeah, they're voices that really haven't been listened to and continue to be ignored. And I think if, yeah, as Annie said and as Janet said, if we're all in this together, then um, let's be in it together, shall we? So now we're going to take a listen to Rim Kwaka Obeng Kasa Love, which is truly a Wednesday brekkie favourite.
是是是，披萨米亚是是是，披萨米亚是爸，披萨米亚是爸爸。We're now going to take a listen to Thursday Brecky's interview with Hila Asala, an Afghan Australian who moved to Australia 30 years ago with her family. She joined Monica to talk about the current situation in Afghanistan following the US withdrawal, as well as how the non-Afghan community can stand in solidarity over the coming months. So we're going to take a listen to that now. And um, bearing in mind, this is going to be part one of this interview. And um, yeah, here's Hila and Monica chatting on Thursday breakfast. We are joined today by Hila Asala, an Afghan Australian um, woman who has been practicing commercial law for around 10 years, but um, in addition to that, spends a considerable amount of time giving back to community by advising not for profits as well as being the director of the Edmund Rice Camps Victoria. And she's joining us this morning to talk about the current situation in Afghanistan following the US withdrawal of troops, as well as how the non Afghan community can stand in solidarity with the Afghan community over the coming months. Good morning, Hila. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Um, it's so beautiful this morning. It really feels like spring, hey? 
It does, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, for listeners joining in today, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and the incredible work you've been doing to support the Afghan community um, over the last few months? Um, absolutely. I might just go back to um, the fact that this week marks 30 years that um, uh, me and my family have been in this wonderful country. Mm. Um, so, you know, 30 years ago, we made the hard journey to also become refugees. Mm. Um, and, you know, opportunity came and Australia gave us an opportunity uh, to have a better life and... Uh, not only just to survive, but to thrive. And here we are 30 years later. Um, And that opportunity has been just to have a fair go, have a voice, um, have an opportunity to to further life and to live in peace um, and harmony and, you know, with dignity and respect. Mm. So I'm I'm very appreciative, um, Mm. you know, in light of what's um, unveiled in the last fortnight. Um, You know, I've managed to get myself um, a decent education and Mm. um, have had a very fulfilling career. Mm. Um, I have, you know, a sister who is an obstetrician. I have a sister who, you know, who works with with aged care system. So um, we've been the lucky ones. Um, Mm. So I guess um, this just shows that, um, you know, Afghans can add a lot of value to the Australian community. And I'm not one. There are many, many, many. So true. Others just like me. Mm. Um, so the last fortnight's been tough. Um, I'm going to try and keep my voice uh, from breaking because yeah. I still get quite emotional about what's happened. Um, uh, you know, if you'd rang me last week or the week before, I probably wouldn't be able to get in any words out because I was completely in shock, quite yeah. saddened and... Um, just had no idea what to do. Um, you yeah. know, in 24 hours, um, pretty much um, I lost my motherland to um, warlords. Um, yeah. And that's just, um, it's not just scary for um, humanity, it's scary for, for all of us, the West, because if um, um, a group of extremists can take over so easily yeah, um, and find a breeding ground, well, we're all kind of in trouble. So... I don't know what it all means and how it happened and why it happened and many, many theories have been floating around. But mm. at the end of the day, um, I'm just sad for my people. They're yeah. human. Yeah. Um, and they have done nothing. They have never asked for wars. They've never asked to be treated the way they've been. And, and you know, in the last 20 years, we've made so many advances um, in the country, both in women's rights, human mm. rights, you know, education, media, journalism, sports, um, and we lost it all. We lost it all in 24 hours, and yeah. that's just devastating. Mm. I think there is a sense of collective grief um, amongst the Afghan and non-Afghan community at the moment, and it's kind of incomprehensible to kind of think about how much has changed in such a short amount of time, hey? Absolutely. Um, um, so I guess, and, and I think we all feel the same pain. I, mm. I mean, as as Afghans, as an as Afghan community, both locally and globally, mm. everybody felt the same. They were mm. paralysed. Then they went through the moment of grief and shock, and then anger, and then they thought, "We need to say something. We need to stand up." So, yeah. um, and that's I guess where 
you know, I, I thought, well, I can't just sit here and, and cry all day and, mm. um, you know, in the midst of a lockdown when our mental health is already at breaking point, yeah. um, you know, this just added to that, um, to that distress, that feeling of helplessness, that, um, you know, that, that, that level of um, just not knowing what to do. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm really lucky. I have many um, groups within the community that are so worldly and so empathetic and um, will do anything to, to help, um, mm. uh, you know, to, to apply their skills to assist communities and human beings. Yeah. So I guess, you know, a week after recovering from my shock and sadness, I thought, I need to do something. Yeah. Um, as an individual, there's only so much you can do when you're so far away from the mm. cause. Mm. But there is still a lot you can do um, because a lot of what's happened um, comes from the West. Yeah. Um, so I guess I spent many, many, many hours reaching out to um, a lot of the people that I graduated um, university with. So a lot of the people I did law with have very prominent positions in the community. Yeah. Um, they're lawyers, barristers, uh, members of parliament, um, and they're good humans. So I reached out to every single one of them personally. Yeah. Um, I wrote to them. I spoke to them. They encouraged me to write wider and and, and bigger and stronger. Yeah. Um, and I did that. So I spent countless hours writing and writing and emailing um, and lobbying and petitioning, um, you know, both the Scott Morrison government yeah. and um, any other individual that I knew had a platform to voice mm. um, uh, the concerns, to voice the current situation, mm. um, to be the voice that we couldn't be, to be the voice um, to those innocent um, yeah. that had no voice. Um, so, I mean, that's what I spent time doing. Um, yeah. And then um, I guess the next thing I thought was, right, um, it seems like the momentum had picked up and there was a lot of people lobbying. So I thought, what else can I do? Um, and I attended a couple of um, sessions with the community and some of the MPs about, you know, immigration and what we can do. And we realised that, you know what, this is a great opportunity to be able to get as many people over here. I mean, the quota is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's only 3,000 and 3,000 will fill up in a day, uh, probably in an hour, actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I reached out to a large group of female lawyers um, Australia-wide. It's a closed group and I pretty much just said I need anybody who has any skills in immigration mm. uh, to help me out and a large number reached out to me. That's so so awesome. through their help, uh, which was kind, and they are not Afghan, not one of them. Mm. Um, so through a generous non-Afghan community, I was able to connect people um, to complete, um, you know, visa applications. And that was just part one of Thursday breakfast um, chat with Hila Arsala, an Afghan Australian who moved to Australia 30 years ago with her family. If you want to catch the whole of that interview, I would really urge you to go to the Thursday Breakfast page on 3CR as they've got the um, show up there and the details that you need to to continue listening to that. It's about 17 minutes long, but it's a really worthwhile listen and um, Hila just goes further into more of the emotional weight of this as well as what 
the community are, are trying to do. And so we're just going to take a quick listen to Porcelain and after the break we'll be with Claudia.
I'm Claudia. Over the next two weeks, I'll be focusing on the responsibility of Australian corporations for the problem of modern slavery. There are an estimated 40 million victims of slavery in the world today. Two thirds of these people live in Asia and the Pacific and approximately 1500 live in Australia. So what is modern slavery? Australian law defines slavery as circumstances where coercion, threats or deception are used to exploit victims and undermine or deprive them of their freedom. The Commonwealth Modern Slavery Act sets out eight different types of exploitation that meet the definition of modern slavery. These include human trafficking, forced marriage, forced labour, debt bondage, servitude, deceptive recruiting for labour or services, and slavery practices involving children. The thing is, while most of us are horrified at the thought of this exploitation, we might be unknowingly supporting it through the consumption of everyday goods and services. Solar panels, mobile phones and tuna fish are just a few of the products with dubious risk profiles when it comes to modern slavery. These products are sold in Australia, but their supply chains stretch across international borders to regions where forced labour or other types of exploitative practices are used. So where does that leave us as consumers and what is the role of corporations who are selling these products in Australia? Here to discuss the responsibilities of Australian companies under the Modern Slavery Act is Dr. Na Pham from the Monash Centre of Financial Studies. Nah is part of a team of researchers who recently reviewed Australia's largest public companies to see how their compliance with the modern slavery disclosure regulations stacked up. Welcome, Nah. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Claudia. Can you tell us what Australian companies are required to do under the modern slavery legislation when it comes to reporting their operations and slavery risk profile? Um, yes, so starting from last financial year, Australian companies, it's not just companies, in fact, they are all um, type of organisations, um, including non-profit organisations and governmental organisations as well. Um, if they have uh, the consolidated revenue of more than, 000, uh, more than 100 million Australian dollars, um, they would have to report on the modern slavery risk within their operations and their supply chain. So in the last reporting rounds, there uh, were more than 3,000 um, entities or reporting entities that have submitted their statements. And can you tell us what constitutes risk and how companies measure risk? Yes, so risk, um, and especially here when we are talking about modern slavery risk, we talk about the um, types of exploitation that you have mentioned. So it is a requirement for Australian companies or organisations to look into their operations and supply chains and to see whether they can identify um, you know, any potential exploitations of modern slavery. So they would have to look into their operations to see whether they have any um, potential sources of, uh, let's say, forced labour or um, child labour. And they also have to conduct risk assessment on their suppliers um, and not just within 
the, their direct supplier is set, but they also have to look into their supply chain. And I do think that the concept of supply chain uh, may need a bit of uh, explanation. So when we talk about supply chain of an organization, we are talking about you know, anything that they need to buy to run or to operate and anything they need to buy um, for resale. So, and when they, we talk about their suppliers, they are their direct suppliers, but we, they also need to look further beyond what we call the first tier suppliers. And it, they have to look into um, the suppliers of the suppliers as well. So they really look, need to look further in their supply chain to see if there is any way that they can be related to any potential sources of exploitations. So that means that company selling a, a product in Australia has to go right back through the supply chain to the actual producers of the minerals or the materials that are used to make a product? Well, um, so as a part of the requirement, they would actually have to work closely with their direct suppliers first, that's the first tier. And then they really have to make sure that their suppliers have system in place to work with the suppliers uh, further up the chain. So it's not the direct responsibility of the Australian companies to go and audit all the suppliers, you know, way further up the chain, but they have to make sure that uh, the suppliers that they are working with have that kind of system to check. So in terms of the actual uh, obligation on the Australian company, its uh, major obligation is related to its direct supplier. Yep. But in terms of tracking back further than that, it is required to have systems but not actually implemented or how yeah. is it different to what they do with let, the tier Let me one? clarify that a bit. So within the Act, the Act asks the companies to look into the risk or the potential risk that they may cause. So the risk that they may cause could include that, you know, maybe they would have some certain pressure on their workers in the operation or some certain type of exploitation. So that would be the, the risk that the companies may cause. And the Act also asks the companies to understand the risk that they may contribute to. So typical example would be, you know, if you set a very unrealistically low price um, for your suppliers, so that put the pressure on the suppliers to, you know, to uh, exploit labours, for example, or go and find, you know, not credible source of supplies. Um, for their own supplies. So that's another example of the risk that you, they need to look into. So that the risk that they contribute to or they might contribute to. And then the, the Act also asks the companies to report on the risk that they may be related to. So the risk that they might be related to would be more likely in um, further up in the supply chain. Okay. And can you give us some examples of companies that um, might have discovered these risks in their supply chain? Yes, so when we, um, in our research project at Monash, what we did was to look at the statements um, of 
the 100 largest companies that are listed on our stock market. And looking at their statements, we, we understand in some cases, companies have identified potential sources of risk. Um, so uh, one example could be, uh, for example, AGL. Um, they identify that in the supply chain of the solar panel, um, there might be risk with forced labor. And uh, Unworth, for example, also had uh, identified potential um, risk related to forced labor, debt bondage, deceptive recruitment, uh, or child labor. Right? So those are the issues that companies have acknowledged that they might have in their supply chain. Okay, can we just um, unpack that a little bit? Uh, can you tell us about the example with the solar panels and what sort of risks uh, specifically and where they are coming from? Yeah, so the, um, the issue of modern slavery risk um, with the solar panels um, uh, comes from you know, where they are made and also what goes into the panel. So the key material that goes into the panels are the polysilicon. So that material is uh, made, um, uh, is mainly sourced from China and about 75% of that is sourced from China. And quite a large component of that is actually sourced from the Xinjiang region in China, um, which is a very controversial area for forced labor because um, the, re the region has been accused of you know, having forced labor. You know, it's a state-sponsored uh, forced labor. So this is the, the Uyghur community. Yes. So that example is to show that what we have uh, in the final product, um, the potential risk can come from what goes into it. You know, maybe it's just a metal, it may be just one material that goes into it, or it could be where the factories are, lo are located and what is the, um, or where the, the panels are made. So once uh, a company like AGL has identified that type of risk, what are they required to do about it and what are they doing about it? Uh, well, it's very, um, so the companies would be in a very, uh, we have to fix with a very clear challenge of, you know, how to solve that. It is not an easy decision just to move away from the suppliers because um, there are very limited alternatives. So the issue is perhaps for the Australian companies to work with the suppliers and through the suppliers leverage their influence and trying to you know, make sure that these issues or this risk are not there and then try to encourage the suppliers to source the material or, you know, or source the products and services from alternative sources. But it will not be some immediate result. It takes a lot of time to actually locate new potential suppliers and also especially if we, if we look into deep into the supply chain where um, it's not just, you know, one factory that manufactures something, it's a whole chain uh, from raw materials into, you know, parts and into 
assembly of the panels. Are there any indications in the statements um, or the requirements under the Act uh, as to how hard a company has to try to rectify those sorts of um, issues in terms of looking for an alternative supplier? Yes, so it doesn't, um, so I don't recall that information from the statement of AGL, for example, but I did see another example with Downer, um, which is another company, also highlighted that they might have issues or they may have um, potential risk of forced labour in their supply chain due to one partner that they have been working with. And so in this situation, the company um, have to go and do their own audit. And when the company did their own audit, they said they didn't find, or after the investigation, they said they didn't find the evidence to support the claim that the partner is associated with forced labor. So that is another, um, so that could be some action for the companies to take because they can conduct investigations, they can conduct audits. But I have to say that it's also not easy, um, especially with COVID, um, because most of the time in order to conduct audits, the companies would have to have site visits or site audit. Um, and with COVID, with border closure, that would be very hard. So the requirement of the act is for the company to assess their risk and also to find a way to address the risk. And it's up on the company to try different avenues or different actions. So that the act doesn't really uh, prescribe, um, you know, what kind of actions the company have to, to take to, to remedy the situation. So is there any evaluation of how effective the actions have been? Or is that uh, something that is determined by the company in their own discretion? So what happens now is that the companies, so within their modern slavery statement, they have to identify the, the potential sources of risk. Um, they have to identify um, if there is any potential issues, what kind of what courses of action that they plan to take. And there is also a section where companies have to report on the effectiveness of their action. And um, whether the, the company have a process in place to evaluate um, the effective, effectiveness of the action. So the Act does require companies to actually monitor the actions. It would be great for consumers if there was a scale that uh, would indicate when you buy your product how that risk uh, applied yes, to that I, product. I guess um, a lot of that could be enabled by um, traceability applications or technology. So I know some of these consumer products already have that traceability um, and that would allow the consumers to know where the products, um, you know, so the final products that we're looking at, um, where do they come from, where they are made. Um, but whether it's come to the level of certification that is modern slavery free, um, I, hope, I hope it will come. And you mentioned Woolworths earlier. They were the company that was ranked the highest in your rankings for compliance with these statement and disclosure obligations, yet uh, they report nine food categories in their global food chain with an extreme risk of forced labour. 
Can you align those two outcomes? Yes, the, um, so what we, uh, when we look at the company statements and we score them, we look at the disclosure quality. So we are not measuring their level of risk. So this is not a risk score. We measure their disclosure quality. So basically we acknowledge that they have been very transparent about the potential risks that they see in their operations and in the supply chain. And they also report on the mechanisms and the systems that allow them to do that risk assessment. So those are the reasons why um, they have been given very high score for their statements. So you could actually have a company that scores quite highly in terms of its disclosure obligations, but actually does have quite a high risk profile in terms of its exposure to practices through its supply chain. Yes, that can totally be possible. Um, but we hope that being able to disclose the information quite transparently um, and when we have confidence that the company understands the potential sources of risk, they are taking action to reduce or to manage the risk. So there are other organisations that are looking at modern slavery risk and they score the risk as well. And a lot of these um, databases um, have the modern slavery risk score so that we can know, um, you know relatively what is the risk of the company compared to their peer or compared to the markets. But looking at the disclosure score, what we hope to be able to get is you know, if the companies are transparent and understand their risk, they will be in a better position to manage the risk. And it's also it doesn't... You know, when the company doesn't disclose, we don't really know whether they have that risk or not, or whether they have good system in place for them to actually understand their risk. And finally, uh, what are the consequences for a company who fails to adequately report its slavery risk profile? Well, for the companies that do not really have uh, adequate and, you know, do not have um, good disclosure, of the um, modern slavery risk. So from the government perspective, I know that the, there is a plan um, that the, the unit that is in charge of modern slavery risk of the Austra Australian Border Force um, will write to every reporting entity and identify the areas of non-compliance in the statement. So and they will get feedback from the government in terms of what areas have been there and or what, what areas have been addressed and which has not been addressed. So I think that will be very good feedback for the companies to understand what is the expectation of the government um, for the dis disclosure. And hopefully our score of the disclosure quality will also um, you know, signal to the companies whether they have done a good job or not so good job in terms of reporting their modern slavery risk. Um, and in fact, since um, Monday, when we released the research, we have received quite a number of requests from the companies that we covered in the research um, for their score, for their subscores, and also for the areas of improvements. Well, that's a good sign. 
there is the, the counter-argument uh, that critics make that the penalties uh, should be much tougher than just getting a letter from the minister saying, you know, you, you haven't quite filled in this form correctly. What's your view on that? Well, I, I think um, with uh, laws and regulations, uh, definitely enforcement uh, is quite important. Um, and the issue is that this is a first year that the companies or the reporting entities have to prepare the statements and submit the statement. So it is understandable that there, there are areas for improvement. Um, and uh, the feedback will help. If the, the, if the problem persists, um, you know, if in the second round of reporting or even in third round of reporting, um, if the companies show the same statements or the same level of quality, if there has been no improvement, I'm sure that the government will take firmer actions to actually improve the reporting quality. But I, I have to say that the quality of reporting, at least within the segments that we have been looking at, is rather good. Well, we'll hope that uh, the government does take those steps in, in the cases where the reporting did fall short. Um, I mean, we are talking about the largest public companies in the country with enormous revenues. So if they can't get their reporting right, that's not the best indication for how things are actually happening on the ground when we're talking about something as uh, fundamental as human rights. Yes, I understand with the large companies that we're looking at, they have a lot of resources and expertise to put in place mm. to help them prepare the statements. And also they have, they investors, communities, the large investors have also been very proactively engaging with the companies to improve um, their systems as well. So they, you know, there are pressures from many fronts. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning explaining that. It's an important framework um, for companies and next week we'll be looking into that more. So thank you, Dr Pham. Dr Pham from the Monash Centre of Financial Studies talking about the risk reporting performance of Australia's largest public companies in relation to modern slavery practices. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. I'll see you. And uh, if anyone's interested in viewing the public register of modern slavery, you can go to the website modernslaveryregister.gov.au and you can read all the statements from the companies that uh, fall under the Act, but also not-for-profit and government departments as well. And if you're looking for more information on modern slavery, you can go to the Anti-Slavery Australia website, www antislavery.org.au and if you or someone you know needs help or feels at risk of being a victim of slavery please go to that website I'll repeat it again www.antislavery.org.au go to the contact in the main menu in the top right hand corner of the website uh, for the numbers to call and I'll just uh, give that number out it's 029514 8115. Of course, if you're in an emergency, call triple zero. 
So I'm Claudia and uh, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. If you have enjoyed this interview, please uh, join me next week. I'll be speaking with Dr Katie Hepworth, the Director of Workers' Rights for the Australasian Centre of Corporate Responsibility. She'll be discussing labour practices in the tuna fish industry, Australia's underpaid farm workers and how companies reconcile what they preach versus what they practice when it comes to modern slavery. Now it's back to Alice. And thank you, Claudia. Yeah, what an interesting interview there with Nafam. Very great. Um, very great. Yeah, that, that sounded right. Um, but very good and uh, great to finish the show on um, on something so educational and something that we can take away with us. And I'm keen to see if I can get my hands on that full report to take a look at as well. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. It's been a show full of community voices. And we started off, of course, with the Children's Collingwood College and listening to to them. We also heard from Janet Bustol um, with Annie on Solidarity Solidarity Breakfast. Um, We heard from Thursday Breakfast crew and their chat with, with their wonderful guest, And then we've just heard from Claudia. So a full community showdown today. And thank you all for joining us. Make sure that you join in all of the Wednesday Brekkie shows and hopefully we'll see you next week. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.